Welcome back to Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show podcast. This is Richard. And uh, today on the show, we're going to look at uh, USA Hockey's American Development Model, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. We're going down to Taunton, Massachusetts, where Al Ramsey, who is originally from Prince Edward Island, has been uh, involved with the American Development Model down there for a few years now, and he's going to tell us all about it. Al, welcome to uh, Grassroots. All right. Thank you, Richard. You're supposed to say it's an honor to be on this podcast. It absolutely is an honor to be on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Now, uh, originally from PEI, and you have a degree in uh, kinesiology, I think, as you said, from uh, St. of X in Nova Scotia. So you do have a background in sport, and you played, of course, played the game way back when. Uh, the American development model down there, we've heard a lot about it in Canada over the last few years, and it's been very successful. Uh, your involvement with it began when? So I, uh, we moved to the U.S. around 2013. I started coaching here uh, 2014. So I would say that was right around the time, at least in our area, where um, there started to be more of an emphasis on the small area hockey and uh, the leagues going to a, a cross ice or a half ice model for the younger kids, um, the U6s and the U8s. So I guess that goes back, what, about seven years now um, that I've been involved with them. So I would say, you know, from our perspective as, as a, a leader at a youth hockey association, um, you know, we've been really focused on implementing, you know, elements of the, the ADM program for at least the last six years. You told me that uh, when we spoke last week, that there had been some resistance to say the least at the beginning. Can you explain that? Yeah, I would say so. I think anytime you introduce change, there's going to be some resistance. Um, there's going to be some questions raised. You know, people are going to have concerns or apprehensions. It looks different, you know, than a, the way that a lot of us learned or a way that a lot of us were taught. So, you know, I can I can understand that. I mean, I can speak for our association. You know, when I came on um, or when I first joined, I was an assistant coach with their, uh, their house league program, and it was just starting to be implemented. And I know that, you know, the uh, some of the folks that were leading the program had some questions and concerns about it. Um, you know, there was a lot of questions from the parents and a lot of concern about, oh, this is not real hockey. How are they going to learn off sides? Um, you know, this isn't the way we've always done it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. So um, I would say definitely for the first year or two that I was exposed to it, I heard a lot of that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, you're just south of Boston in, in Taunton and, and Massachusetts and New England in general is a hockey hotbed. Like they, they love their hockey down there. Um, so I'm not surprised that there was some pushback. How bad was the pushback? I would say it was pretty bad, um, at least in that first couple of years. So you have a couple of different you have a couple of different things going on down here. So. You know, there's there's town youth hockey, which I'm a part of. Um, there's also, I guess, a club, which is a separate separate set of rules, I think, for, um, you know, the AA, AAA associations, uh, which now I'm also involved with. But, um, you know, at that time, there was a, there was definitely a split where you see town youth hockey programs uh, participating in half ice games throughout the leagues. And then, you know, this other group of organizations that split off and did not implement the half ice talk or the cross ice hockey as part of the AU and the six U games. So I would say. So they weren't obligated to do that. They, honestly, Richard, I'm not exactly sure how they how the mechanics of it worked. I know that 
Um, in order to do so, there were a lot of teams and programs, and actually our own league uh, started doing this about three years ago, um, where they've they've kind of separated themselves from USA Hockey for those programs that are going to run full ice. So the insurance is something separate. Uh, the team names and logos are different. Uh, you know, for our for the town league that that actually operates a full ice division at 8U, uh, they've got a separate registration system that people log into and they register their teams under a different name with a different jersey. Um, and everything is kind of kept totally separate because it doesn't fall under USA Hockey's insurance program and jurisdiction. So it's definitely, a, you know, it's definitely a, an interesting scenario. So there's, they're almost like an outlaw organization. I don't know if I'd go as far as calling it outlaw. I mean, I know that USA Hockey understands that this, this is going on, and it's certainly, you know, one of the biggest leagues in this whole area, um, you know, from a competitive standpoint the EHF. I mean, that's, that's the direction that they've gone. Right. So USA hockey and, and mass hockey are well aware of it. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's just, I guess where things ended up. So those kids at age seven, eight, etc., are playing full ice and are not adhering to the American development model program. Is that correct? In terms of the games? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the games, but in terms of practices, are they, falling back to the tried and true one team on the ice type of stuff? I mean, I can't speak for every association. Uh, I mean, from what I've seen, uh, I would say there are organizations that, that have kind of moved in that direction. There are some that are in the process of moving to that. And then there's organizations that are, are, you know, doing stuff that, you know, maybe doesn't align with what the, the principles of the ADM are. I think it really depends on the organization. Yeah, can you explain the difference between uh, the uh, town and youth hockey? Uh, I mean, as you know, in Canada, hockey is ninety-eight percent run by or organized through municipal arenas. We don't have a lot of private arenas, and they're not running their own hockey organizations for the most part. But down there, you have some two somewhat distinct entities. Can you explain that? Not explain it, but can you describe it? <laughs> Yeah. So in simple terms, I think, you know, several years ago, there was a bit of a split where, um, you know, hockey in this area, like in most areas was, was always kind of town municipal operated, um, not for profit. Um, and then there was a, a for-profit element that came in. So there's, there's kind of two separate, I guess, streams in the, in the state. There's, you know, the, the, Hometown programs, I think, is what they're officially called in, in the, the Mass Hockey Annual Guide. And then there's a the club program. So there's different restrictions. You know, there's different things that those those different teams are allowed to do. Um, you know, for the town leagues, they typically play at like, a you know, up to a double A level. And the club programs are typically double A and triple A type programs. When you say for profit, you're saying that there are people who actually own double A, triple A clubs. Yes. Yeah, so in a lot of cases, it'll be, uh, you know, the rink operator, somebody will own the rink, but then they'll also own the minor hockey association. Now let's look at the American development model. Uh, your introduction to it was what? My first introduction to it was just going to the coaching clinics. So, you know, I, I started out with, with Tri-County Saints as an assistant coach, just, I think like most fathers do, you know, my, my daughter was going to participate and um, I just kind of showed up at the rink. I didn't really know a whole lot about how things were run down here. I just showed up at my local rink and found a, found an association signed her up. And when I, when I arrived, just, you know, let them know that I could, I could help. 
And uh, I think I caught the coaching bug right from, from day one. I mean, I had certainly a background of it from my, from my school days and stuff like that and growing up, but uh, yeah, I really, I really took to coaching. I really enjoy it. I uh, really love it. So um, I think my first introduction was just going to the, to the coaching education program, the level one, that first year, um, you know, the USA hockey's got a pretty good online set of modules as well. So, um, you know, things that education on what you're supposed to be doing at certain ages and, and things like that. So um, at this point, you know, I've kind of progressed up through the, through all of the stages for the coaching education program. And um, yeah, so I, I actually had the opportunity this past year to start joining the, the Massachusetts district as a coach developer and, and presenting on some of these topics. So it's been a, it's been a neat ride for sure. At the very beginning when your daughter, your daughter was how old when she started? My daughter was six, you know, when she got started. And what did you notice about the on ice program? Which is probably different from what you experienced yourself years ago in PEI. Yeah. I'd, I'd say like in terms of, in terms of the way that we operated, you know, the, the programs for, at that time, house league, we were in a, a bit of a state of transition. So when I first joined up, it actually looked fairly similar to what we had done um, when I was growing up. It was, it was, you know, a small number of kids on the ice, um, you know, up to, up to maybe two teams or something like that, splitting ice, running separate practices. Uh, we did experiment a little bit with joining teams up, but I think it was really in like the second or third year um, that I was involved where we really started to look at what, the ADM really was and how we could implement it and how it could benefit the kids as well as benefit our association. And so that's when we really dove into it. So we actually went to USA hockey and, and uh, we went through a process of looking at what it would take to become a model association here about, uh, I would say that was probably four years ago. And, you know, there was a lot of requirements, honestly. So, you know, it's, it, they really look to have large group practices focused on skill development, small area games, uh, lots of fun for the kids, minimal standing around, especially at the young ages. Um, so it was definitely a, a change in terms of the programming that we were doing and, and kind of a change in terms of our philosophy as coaches and how we work together. It's, you know, the way we ended up structuring it for our program is that, um, you know, there's, there's a person at each level who kind of takes charge of the, the teams and all the, all of the participants at that age who ensures that the practice plans are aligned with what we want to try and achieve focused on skills and small area games, um, you know, with, with a lot of action and a lot of fun and um, all the coaches underneath them at those levels work together to, to make a great experience for the kids. So it's really, it's done, done a lot of stuff for us. Um, it's allowed us to, to bring consistency to, to all the kids, you know, so it's not like on one team, you've got a coach who's been coaching for the last 10 years. And on the other team, you've got a coach who maybe it's his first time coaching a sport ever, or maybe he's never really played that kind of thing. So it, it allows us to, to do a lot of things, I think, um, and really improve the experience for the kids. Who oversees the actual program? Um, so myself as the hockey director, I work with those age level directors to, to kind of implement the program. And it, it all starts, you know, actually this time of year for next season. So we're, we're in the process right now of identifying who those coaches are going to be. Um, you know, we have our trial process to place the kids on, on whatever team they're going to be placed on, which is always interesting. Right. So, mm, yeah. you know, once, once we've got that, then we can start looking at who's going to be, you know, who's at that age that could actually coach. Right. So, so we try to place the kids first, then place the coaches. And, and that's kind of where some of the challenges usually arise, right? Where you have, you know, a team that's got maybe three or four guys because you're all parent, volunteer parents, right? 
So you might have three or four coaches on one team and maybe one or none on another team. So what do you do? Right. So this allows us to, to again, go back out to those parents. And if we need to find additional volunteers who may be a little bit uh, fearful or reluctant at first, you know, just because they don't have the, the experience or the knowledge or they may not be able to commit the time or, you know, whatever the case might be, but because there's that support and, you know, there's, there's other people to mentor them and help them out. I think we've been able to, to get a lot of people involved. And I think we've seen a lot of guys come in who maybe didn't even realize that they wanted to be coaches and then get into it and, and really took to it, um, you know, and have become some of our best coaches in the association. Where are the lesson plans coming from? So, um, I mean, we've got a lot of resources. USA Hockey, they've got this website called ADM Kids. So there's a lot of stuff there. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, and I did all the practice planning for the eight U's this year, um, you know, it was a mix of um, elements of the, the practice plans from ADM Kids uh, mixed with some stuff that I've done in the past and other resources I've found from other programs I've been involved with. So, um, you know, I'd say it's, it's kind of a mix, but it's, all, it's always geared towards a common a common theme, right? Like, you know, the types of drills, the types of things that we do, it's fairly consistent. And you had told me that you had quite a large number of kids on the, or larger number that, than we're used to in Canada. You said you had 45 to 50 kids often on the ice. Yeah, definitely for, so this year we actually had some restrictions with respect to COVID. Um, we had a maximum capacity of 50 kids on the ice at a time. And we maxed that out fairly regularly. So I think uh, for our, our in-house program, our development program, we call it this year, we were, I think there were about 55 kids registered for the program, you know, and we'd have 95% attendance, 90% attendance. So we never really, we tracked it. We never went, went above the 50. Um, but the mites, there was, you know, in around 32 in the program, I think it's at uh, 10U, 12U and 14U, we were right around the 50 mark. So lots of kids on the ice. And you arranged, how did you arrange them? Um, so we took, or how do you do? I think there's, there's different ways to do it. So I don't know that we've, I don't know that we've t taken uh, a real strict approach on how we organize the ice, you know, from my perspective and my practices, I do it a few different ways. So we sometimes we'll do a five station practice plan, you know, split each end zone and then have a, a zone in the middle. Uh, in some cases we'll have a long zone down all one side and we'll have, you know, maybe two or three stations set up along the other side. Um, I think it just depends on what the practice plan is, what games and what drills you're looking to do, what skills you're working on. And then from there, you kind of organize the ice. Now we do try to keep some things consistent, right? So for example, like kids are creatures of habit, right? So if you rotate clockwise, you want to always rotate clockwise with the stations. And that just seems to make things easier for the kids. But, you know, as coaches, we also have to, because you've got a lot of things going on at, at, at any given time, you got to make sure that there's communication out there. So the coaches, you know, when they get step on the ice, there's a practice plan that's sent out ahead of time that they can review. We post it up on the glass. We figure out what the assignments are going to be and what the key teaching points are. Everybody's on the same page. And then when we actually go to shift, we'll go around. Uh, usually we try to arrange it so that there's enough. There's at least a couple of coaches at each station, plus, you know, somebody floating between the stations. And uh, before we switch, you know, we'll make sure everybody's aligned as to where the kids are going next and, and that kind of thing, especially if it's a five station plan and, you know, you get that zone in the middle. Anytime I, I work with a bunch of coaches or, or do a clinic of some sort, I ought to always point the, the coaches to the admkids.com website 
uh, because uh, the and not not because the, the lesson plans should be taken verbatim. For one thing, they're sixty minutes long. Our ice times here are usually fifty, but uh, because they seem to be very well organized and very detailed. Uh, have you found a lot of support for the content that they provide? Yeah, I think if, for the most part, the coaches love it. You know, it's it's really good content, really good practices. I think we're in the same boat as you are in terms of, you know, you have to look at what your situation is and how you can how you can do things that are aligned with that, maybe not necessarily verbatim, right? Because again, we're using 50 minutes. Um, in some cases, we've got a wide range of skill level on the ice. So for our development program, for example, we might take elements of a, a USA Hockey 6U plan, 8U plan, and 10U plan and, and implement it on the ice, right? It just kind of depends on the, it just kind of depends on on what it is that you need. So I think, I think our approach has really been to look at the key concepts, look at the intent, and then how can we apply that to best benefit the kids in our situation? For each age group, as you go up through the program, you know, eight U, you call it eight U down here, it's U8, U10, and so on. But eight U, 10 U, 11 U, 12 U, and what have you. Uh, are the coaches more or less following the guidelines of the American development model? I would say within our association, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, because of the structure that we've had. So as I said before, it starts now. And uh, we'll have a coaches meeting before the season starts up to get everybody on the same page. And, you know, that's a, a good refresher for the guys that are, you know, have been with us for a while. It's a, it's a good chance to get everybody aligned who's coming in as a new coach into the association so that everybody knows, you know, what it is that we're about and what the objectives are for the season and how we're going to operate. So the way we've done it in the past is we'll have a, we'll have a backgrounder in terms of, you know, what to expect and, the reasons behind, you know, why we're doing things the way we are aligned with the ADM, a little bit of background information on what the ADM is and, and what it entails. And then we break off into, into groups by age level and we'll have breakout sessions run by that group. So we'll have the head coaches, the assistant coaches, and, and that director for that age level having a discussion on what they want to, you know, how they want to run the practices, how they want to, you know, what are the key things they want to focus on for the year, you know, what their experiences are and, you know, I've seen those where we've had a two-hour coaches meeting and at the end of it, those groups get back together and continue having a chat for 15, 20 minutes, right? Just because they enjoy, um, you know, discussing amongst themselves what it is that they're, they're trying to achieve. What are the kinds of things you're trying to stay away from in the program that you're running? I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to stay away from is, uh, you know, standing in line. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that we do it tries to, we try to make sure that we're aligned with whatever the work to rest ratio is for that specific group. So for mites, you know, it's, it's a fairly, it's a lot of work to little rest, right? Those, those kids, they just kind of motor around. Um, I think we, we look for, um, I like the way Roger Grillo puts it. He's our regional ADM manager. He says they like to think of it, think of your drill as, as Flintstone vitamins. You know, we're trying to, to get them to learn something without knowing necessarily that they're learning that. So how can you, how can you, whatever skill it is that you're trying to teach, how can you teach it in a way that's fun for an eight-year-old where they're going to learn the skill. They're going to, it's going to be reinforced as part of the drill. Cause that's really important, right. In terms of how you design your drills, how is that skill going to be brought out and reinforced and make it so that at the end of the practice, they got a big smile on their face, they're sweaty and they want to come back next week. You know, in terms of other things we want to try to avoid, you know, I think, um, you know, I, 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 the example we always give is like, you don't want your eight year olds practicing the breakout, 
right? There's lots of things that we can do to teach the concepts and reinforce the concepts that are going to be important for executing a breakout. Like how do you make a pass, right? How do you, you know, the concepts behind baiting in a player, um, you know, free up space for somebody else. Like we can teach all that through small area games. We can teach it through, um, you know, skill drills where there's lots of repetition. We can teach that through, um, you know, elements where we've got coaches that are providing some resistance and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, we're not going to have kids stand around for 20 minutes while the coach rails on about what they should be doing, right? We want them learning and doing it and having the game be the teacher, but we're kind of like, uh, I guess the teacher's assistant, you know what I mean? Reinforcing the concepts. With respect to that point of having the game be the teacher, about what percentage of your, of your practice sessions are either small area games or some kinds of fun games? So I can speak for, you know, what we did at the might level and my level this year, uh, we kind of had a fairly common theme for all of our practices. You know, we, we phased out the season. We had initially, we focused the first six, six or eight weeks on skating. Um, and then we moved on to puck handling, then it was passing. And then it was, it was more, I guess, game concepts uh, that we kind of focused on, but you know, we touched on all skills at all practices. And the way we typically set it up is we'd have a, a game station, which was pretty much, you know, fun and games, but with some kind of an intent behind it, whether it was a tag game or, you know, Sharks and Minnows game or something like that. Uh, then we'd have some kind of a one-on-one -on -one game or drill, um, a greater than one-on-one, -on -one, like a two-on-one or three-on-two game, you know, whether it's, uh, I would say that we, we tried to gamify a lot of stuff. Right. So whatever, whatever kind of rules you can introduce, we did a lot of things called, you know, we had a game called Gretzky's. We had another one called three in the tree and we had um, all sorts of things that we did just different variations of, you know, those kinds of concepts. Um, so I all of which were done in a small space, right? Yeah. All of which are done in a small space. And even the, even when we were working on skill, it was still like high repetition, small group. You know, if you're running a group of mites, say with, you know, in our case, 32 on the ice, you got five stations. You're not talking large groups of kids at any one station, right? So if you could do something where the kids were, you know, if you can make it a race where there's two kids instead of one going, even better. If you could do it where there were, you know, if you're doing a stick handling drill and you can have, you know, something set up where, you know, there's four kids with a puck and one kid without and a bunch of obstacles that they have to navigate around and navigate around each other. And that one kid trying to take the puck, that's a lot better than, you know, having five kids stand in line waiting to go around a cone. Has there been anybody from uh, USA Hockey or the American Development Model or Massachusetts Hockey or whatever uh, coming out to have a look at, at what you're doing? Yeah, so we had brought we had the ADM manager for our region come in and give a presentation when we were, you know, when we were developing our programming a few years ago. Uh, we've had Mass Hockey in as well to do the same thing. Um, you know, we've had a lot of conversations with them over the course of the last couple of years. We've exchanged videos. Um, you know, I think um, Mass Hockey last year, last year or the year before, did a, a write up on our association and the things that we were we were doing as as kind of a, you know, here's here's a look at how Tri County's been able to improve the quality of the programming and grow their association um, and the types of things that they're doing to be successful. And when you say grow the association, was there a problem with numbers or, re or retention? Absolutely. That's, that's one of the main drivers behind what we started doing. So I think there were, there were two drivers. One, I think was the, you know, the quality of the programming. We wanted to improve, improve the quality of the programming, um, you know, improve our skill development. And uh, the second was we were really in, in kind of hard shape in terms of numbers. So I think, 
there had been a downward trend for several years. Um, you know, when we really dove into to doing what we're doing now, uh, we were at a point where our, our in-house program, our development program was down to about 15 kids uh, from a high of probably 60, maybe three or four years before that. And we were down to a single 8U team. So I think we really took a hard look and said, like, we've got to do something here because, you know, the participation's dropping, you know, whether it's the overall participants in the area aren't coming in or whether it's those participants are going elsewhere, you know, club teams or wherever. And so what this, you know, basically what's happened is kind of a complete 180. Now we've got the opposite program problem where we've got, you know, so many kids now we're trying to figure out, you know, where we can get ice and how we can get ice, what other rinks we might have to get into and, and that kind of thing. So we've effectively, I think the, the development program went from about 15 kids to 55 this year. The travel program went from about 100 kids to, and by travel, I mean the 10U, 12U and 14U, that doubled. So, so clearly you're doing something right. Uh, in terms of games, what's the practice to game ratio? Now, not with the littlest kids because they have some kind of game every time they're on the ice, but for the, for the older kids, uh, about what is the practice to game ratio? So we typically do two practices a week and one skill session to, and, and a game. So I would say two practices of skills and a game three to one. And that's regularly throughout the season? Pretty much every week, yeah. You might have two games on the occasional weekend, the Saturday and the Sunday game. The practices are consistent. We have the same days, same times every week for all levels. Skill sessions, same time, same same day of the week. So a, a, a typical team would play, what, 25, 30 games over the course of the year? Does that sound Yeah, we're about a 30-game season. About a 30-game season. So that means they would have 60 to 90 practices over the same length of time. I would say at least 90, yep. So 90, so that's 120 ice sessions over, we're talking six months, seven months, eight months? They, we start mid-August and uh, we wrap it up around the first week of April. Has there been any kind of resistance to the length of the season or the numbers of practices or the numbers of games? One way or the other, too much, too few? I, I think a little bit. I mean, we're we're kind of challenged in that, like, the way, the way it works down here, we've got to buy a block of ice time. So that block of ice time starts the, in mid-August and it runs until the end of April. So we've, we've actually still got ice times going on right now, even though our league is wrapped up. You know, we're, we utilize this time of year for tryouts. Um, we'll do some fun things with the kids, the parents against the kid games and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've got a couple of skill clinics that we run. Uh, we actually got one coming up this weekend. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a long, long season. It's a long haul. And honestly, like 90 practices, probably way more than that. Um, again, because the first month or so, it's only practices. We have no games, right? So from mid-August until probably mid-September, it's just practices. Um, and then at the end of the year, we've got, again, just practice time because the league playoffs wrap up around the 1st of, of April. So, and we've got bonus practices there where, uh, you know, on Saturday mornings, we've got a, number, a group of hours and for teams that don't have games on Saturdays, you know, they get, they get an extra practice there. I think uh, if you're not, let's say, initiated into what hockey is, it can be a little daunting. Like I've had conversations with parents where, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know if I want to commit to playing hockey because it's, it's like two times a week, right? And it's like, actually, it's probably four or five times a week. You know, and these are for little kids. So it's definitely a lot. Um, from my side, you know, I, I've got a bit of an eye on, on the long-term athlete development stuff. And, you know, I, I do worry a little bit about, especially the younger kids, 
um, being on the ice that much. Um, but it's, that, that's kind of the way it is around here. And, and in order to compete, in order to, you know, justify buying a block of ice for the year, you, you kind of, you're kind of forced into it. You know, I think the other thing it is, the other problem it kind of creates is that like this time of year, right. There's still hockey going on. We're trying to get kids playing baseball and soccer and, you know, USA hockey is really advocating for kids to be multi-sport athletes and not specialized before they're 15, 16. And it, it's really tough for people, you know, because again, you've still got hockey going on, but yet you're trying to do all these other things. And um, it's a lot. You've got four months really from, from April to August, you really only have a four month window to do other sports given the, the length of the hockey season. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think in that way, there's probably some work to do. And, and I don't know what the answer is, honestly, Richard, like we've had this conversation, right. With our own associations, like if you cut down the length of the programming and other, you know, and, and the other associations are not, it's, that's kind of tough. And, you know, you have this block of ice that you have to buy, you know, so we had to pay for it. So mm. we have to have the programming to support it, you know, so it's, uh, it's a little bit of a tricky situation, I think. This is municipal ice that you're talking about, isn't it? It's not private sheets. Um, the way it works. So with our rink, it's uh, it's actually a state owned rink and there's a management company that operates about 20 of those rinks. And so, you know, they've, it's, it's sort of like a municipal rink back home. Not really. Right. Not really a for-profit right. either. Yeah. So I, down in the States, the whole mentality towards numbers of games is vastly different from up here because you know, the high school programs, the prep school programs, and the university programs do not focus on having 60, 70, 80 game seasons and going to five tournaments. That's very much a Canadian thing. That's why it's so hard to have a three to one ratio up here because everybody is hell bent on playing more games. Down where you are in the program you're describing, you seem to have an awful lot of practices. Like if you're talking about 90 practices a year for little kids, that is more than our children will have in two seasons in a lot of cases. Is that right? Oh, sure. But on the other hand, it certainly helps with their development. You must see a huge change in their, in their development over the course of a season. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. The, the, the growth that, you, that we've seen this year, like I was watching, I've watched a lot of, you know, I, I take a lot of stuff off of Librarian and off of, you know, online resources and watching the kids at the start of the year to the end of the year, it's like night and day. Well, if you're on the ice 90 times just for practice, you would have that. Uh, up here, it just doesn't happen. What have you, if you look at, at the programming that you've put together, what are the kinds of things that you would like to see really improved upon over the next uh, two or three seasons? I think I'd like to see just to, honestly, I think that we've got the right pieces in place. I think that the more we can develop our coaches so that they can effectively teach skills, you know, and teach skills in a way that children understand and can learn. I think that's probably where we need to focus. So we've actually had, you know, our, our skills instructor is uh, Laura Stam. And um, he's actually done some coach development where we've had him out to, you know, train the trainers, I guess, so to speak and run some of the coaches through to a line so that we can, when we're in practice, we can incorporate elements of the programming that he's doing on Sunday night with the kids in our practices. So we can work on, you know, same terminology. We can work on the same things if we're doing a skating drill or a skating game or whatever, uh, we can incorporate that. We've got a partnership with Power Edge Pro as well. So we incorporate that in our practices. Uh, we've actually got a, a clinic that we're running this week where we've got, um, you know, an instructor from uh, Toronto coming in to, 
to teach about 20 of our coaches, you know, their system and the teaching points behind that. So we've incorporated that into the ADM and, and the small practices that we run. Uh, I think it really fits into it. But, you know, the more we can develop those coaches to be able to teach it more effectively and how we can incorporate it, you know, more into our programming without having kids stand in line and just focus on skills that are, you know, not directly transferable to the game, the better off we'll be. So we just got to keep moving in that direction. With respect to the education of the coaches and the program, uh, how has that gone largely? I think it's gone well. I mean, the guys are, the guys are interested, right? I think we've created a, we've got a culture. We've got great people. They're really dedicated. They want to do good stuff for the kids. And I think, you know, the, the more you offer them, without forcing it down people's throats, the better off you'll be. So like this stuff that we're doing this weekend, this is purely volunteer. It's got, if you have the time, if you want to come and learn, come and learn. And again, we've got probably 20, 25 coaches signed up, given up their weekend in April um, to come in and, and learn this stuff, you know, because they want to, and they want to do a good job for the kids. Still want to be better. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something that I've certainly learned over the years is that Coaches want to get better at what they do in the same way as the kids want to get better at what they do. Kids want to learn. Yeah. They don't want to be the worst player on the ice. Uh, what have been the stumbling blocks recently to moving the program forward a little bit more, even if it's baby steps? Well, definitely COVID. COVID was a major, was a major thing. All oh, sure. Of course. Yeah. You know, it's, so it was a lot of, honestly, last summer was pretty high stress, I got to say, because, you know, we, there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the rinks had shut down and at the end of last season. We missed our tryout period. Uh, we typically do our tryouts in the spring for next season's teams, which honestly, I, I'm not a big fan of because I think a lot of kids grow and there's a lot that happens over the summer. Um, I'd like to see it in the fall. The challenge is that, you know, if that's what the standard is, it's hard to break from what the standard is because kids are, you know, trying out for different teams and stuff in the spring, right? So I'd like to see that change to the fall. Honestly, I really liked how it went last year, but um, you know, it's, again, it's a bit of a challenge. So we're actually running them here this spring. Um, you know, we had a lot of challenges with ice, you know, and trying to make sure, cause again, we're trying, we're trying to look at our numbers increasing and what we need in terms of ice and um, around the uncertainty of COVID, you know, where we're not for profit. It, it was a bit, it was definitely stressful and put it that way, trying to, trying to figure out what it is, but I think we came to a good solution. We, we ended up picking up enough ice to cover, cover our teams and we ended up, you know, making the season run. Uh, I think we had one, two week shutdown where the whole state had shut down. And then we had a few instances where a team was quarantined because somebody had COVID on the team. We had zero incidents where it was spread between players which was great, you know, and a testament to the volunteer that we had who was our COVID coordinator for the year. So she was the one liaising with the boards of health, liaising with the teams, liaising with the parents and the players. Um, you know, we, we definitely made it clear to everyone that it doesn't really matter what you think about the rules. It doesn't really matter what you think about COVID or the government or whatever other, you know, concerns that people have. This is the kind of thing that we're doing. This is what we're sticking to. And this is why. And, you know, we're just going to put our put our, our big, our, uh, I want to say big boy pants. I don't know if that's PC or whatever. We're just going to, you know, we're going to do what we got to do, you know, and whether we like it or not. So we've really stuck to that. And honestly, like I can say that we had a program that ran from August until now kids in the rink every day. We had kids on teams that had COVID from other places came into the rink. Nobody else got a no spread, you know, and, and to, for that to happen over the course of the season is pretty incredible. I think. Um, but yeah, that was, that was definitely, 
I guess, our challenges for this year. Now, from your own perspective as, as a coach, and you were a new coach when you started in this program a bunch of years ago, uh, how have you seen your own growth uh, as a coach over the last uh, seven seasons or so? Well, I hope that I've grown some. Um, you know, I think the way that I've approached it, I mean, I, I almost feel like I learn something new every day every time I'm on the ice, whether it's from one of our other coaches. And that's one of the things that I love about this model where the coaches all work together. Like I learned something from one of the other coaches, every single practice, every practice, learn something from the kids, you know, where I say something and they don't get it. Or, you know, in some cases it'll be the kids saying something and, and I'm picking up what they're talking about. Right. And I think as a coach, that's what you have to do. You got to be open to, you got to first come into it with an understanding that the way that you learned isn't necessarily the best way. And it's maybe not necessarily the modern way or the right way. Uh, and you got to look at it as you're going to learn something every single time you're out there. And if you take that approach, then you're going to grow. When you started in the program in what was it, 2013, you said, or 14, yep. uh, that what raised your eyebrows about what was going on? So you went, I, I, I don't get this. Well, certainly, you know, the, when the numbers were dropping, um, you know, again, the program was being the pro the initial program that my daughter was in was probably run more old school than ADM. Um, she didn't really take to it. She actually didn't, didn't really like the hockey that much. And I had a young son who was coming up. He was a four year old at the time, just getting started. And, um, I, I had an experience, I had two conversations that really kind of triggered me. There was uh, a conversation with a lady at a rink who run, another association who had commented that, you know, she had moved from town to a club organization and that eventually town programming was going to die in the state because of, you know, what was happening. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it kind of made me wonder, right? Like I, for me, there's a, there's a real benefit to having nonprofit volunteer organized parent involved hockey, you know, and, and I'm stepping into the other world here now and into the club uh, realm this season, but, and I think there's a place for that too, but I think there's, I think they're a nice counterpoint, you know, from my perspective, the, the community organized stuff is great for the kids. Um, it's great for the community. It's great for um, making sure that everybody's got a place to play, but I also recognize that there's a high performance side to the game as well. And you want to have that, that side covered too. Right. And that might be the best scenario for, for some families, for some kids. So I think there's a benefit to having strong town hockey in, in the state and doing everything that we can do to, to make community hockey, community organized hockey successful, right? So that was that was really one thing. And at a conversation, it was actually a, a director of the association who had commented at a tryout that uh, you know, we were watching the kids in the ice and he pointed some kid out and he said, oh, that, that can't be one of ours because he skates well. And <laughs> I, I just, it made me so angry, right? Because it's like, well, you know, and he, and he ran, rattled off some, a bunch of clubs that the kid could have come from. It's like, well, why can't we do that? Like we can do that. We can teach kids to skate. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science, right? Teaching kids to skate. You just got to do the right things. So, you know, I think the, do the right thing is the right way with the right people, the right things, the right way with the right people at the right time. Right. And, and that's the art of coaching, yes. you know, as Wally would put it, Wally Kozak, but like, yeah. you know, and I think the looking back on it now, I mean, we've had these conversations over the past couple of weeks at our tryouts watching the, the skill level, and the skating ability and the puck handling ability and the game sense that we've seen at these trios, like it's just night and day. It's mm -hmm. like, we, I think in that respect, we've really achieved our goal. What are your challenges going forward as a coach? Well, I think, 
you know, there's a couple of challenges that I, you know, that I think about uh, one from more of a program administrator, like how do we keep this going? Right. Um, you know, we, we've kind of set things up so that, you know, we've got mentors in the association running each, each level, you know, working with the coaches and the idea is that, you know, as that, as that coach progresses, the next guy who was with him is going to take, take that over and keep it going. So making sure that, you know, we've got that mentoring happening, that we've got that programming saved, you know, the practice plans are saved for the next guy to pick up and improve on. Uh, for me as a coach, it's to keep moving forward, right? So I've kind of maxed out my coaching education stuff from USA Hockey. So how do I keep learning? So it's finding opportunities to speak with other coaches, um, you know, and, and continue learning. And there's there's lots of opportunities out there if you look. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, probably too much time doing that. You said you're now a coach developer. In other words, you're you're teaching the coaching program for, uh, for the newer coaches. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was invited um, to participate in in the USA Hockey Coaching Education Program this year for the Mass District, um, and be one of the presenters on. You know, I think most of them were long term development. Some of them were on the ADM, um, that kind of thing. How did you find that experience? It was fantastic. I got to say, like, so they actually changed, they completely rethought their coaching education program this year because it was because of COVID, because you can't have, you know, in-person classes and they didn't want to go to a, a set, like completely a set of online modules where it's, you know, go at your own pace. So what they, what USA Hockey did was they put together this um, seminar over Zoom and it was very interactive where we would basically raise concepts, you know, present a little bit of information uh, and sort of thought provoking slides and then send everybody out to groups to discuss and then bring them back. And what ended up happening because it was all online, even though it was for the Massachusetts district, you'd end up having coaches from Minnesota and Wisconsin, Florida, Massachusetts, Virginia, Carolina, like everybody was in, everybody would sign up for whatever class suited them. Right. So it wasn't just Massachusetts coaches. And so you'd end up in these breakout sessions and they actually scheduled them longer than what the participants would need to give the coaches extra time to talk. And uh, they'd send us in as, as the coach developers, the facilitators, they'd send us into these breakout rooms with, you know, six coaches and, and they'd be in there talking about a totally unrelated topic, but something that was, you know, useful or pertinent, right? Like I had this problem. Here's how we did it. Oh, what do you guys do about this? And, you know, it was great conversation. So I thought, I really thought they were fantastic. Where do you think the American development model needs to go uh, over the next few years to get even better? Because we've certainly seen at the national level, you know, the, the junior programs, the U18 programs, they're, they're, you know, their teams have improved considerably over the last seven years. And their numbers have increased overall in USA hockey. You know, and that was one of the big reasons why the ADM began in the first place was a player retention issue going back uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Where does it need to go moving forward to get better? I mean, from my perspective, I think, I think in terms of the coaching education side, I think there could be more done to communicate to the coaches the reasons why we do stuff. I think they do, they do a pretty good job in the, in the presentations, but specifically around the half ice hockey. I think there could be more around, you know, what, what does the modern game really look like and why are we doing things this way? And why is small area hockey or playing half ice cross ice games? Why is that important? And how does that translate into learning what they're going to need to learn to be able to play at the next 
age level, right? And eventually, hopefully, some of them will go on to play at a high level. Do you I don't have to make some of those that. explanations to parents yourself? We do, actually. So we do. I mean, that's another area, I think, uh, parent education. So there's, there's not a lot of parent education. I think they do, you know, they, they, they do a lot in terms of their newsletters and things like that stuff on Facebook. But in terms of providing programming for the associations to use, there's not a lot, right, to take out and present to parents. So we've done that ourselves. You know, we've, we've come up with a parent presentation, you know, covering everything from sports psychology to, you know, the modern gameplay to cross-ice hockey and the reasons why and um, skill development and how skill development happens and why we're doing what we're doing in practice and how that translates into the games and how it's going to translate into learning what they need to learn to move up to the next age level. Um, so I think, you know, providing more of that would be, would be helpful, but that that's honestly that parent education stuff is probably the, it's probably been the most important thing or the most helpful thing that we've done because we, we typically do it with our development program for the new kids coming in uh, who've never played before brand new parents. Most of them are new to hockey. Some of them are not, some of them have been through it before, but it's good. It's, you know, good refresher. Some of them, we've got some parents who have older kids in the program who are in Bantam, but younger kids that are just coming in. So it's, it's kind of a new thing for them too. Right. But to get everybody on the same page from day one has been, been really, really helpful. And we do it the first practice, first ice time. Some of the coaches go out, some of the coaches stay in the room and uh, we'll do a presentation for the parents. It takes a full hour uh, while their kids are on the ice and we, we give an opportunity for them to ask all sorts of questions. And, you know, that's, it's really been key to getting everybody on the same page. Now, uh, Al, you had mentioned earlier about uh, the number of ice sessions uh, that the kids have from mid August to about the, uh, the end of April, but you sent me a, a video uh, before we got on the air here uh, showing off ice an off ice session and it looked like in a parking lot. What was all that about? It was a tremendous video of, of what the kids are doing off ice. Why do you do that? When do you do it? How often? And so on. So, so that was actually one of the takeaways when we reviewed, um, you know, the ADM with USA Hockey and we brought them in, they talked about incorporating off-ice training into our programming. So, um, you know, we felt that was really important. The kids are on the ice an awful lot throughout the course of the season. So we wanted to give them a little bit of uh, movement education as well. So we do some mobility and stretching exercise uh, combined with you know, it's essentially a phys ed class. You know, we do a lot of different movements. We do hand-eye coordination stuff, all the things that you would see in a, in a typical gym class. Um, we don't have facilities at the rink. So, you know, essentially we utilize what we can, the parking lot. Uh, we've got some areas around the outside of the ice surface, you know, in front of the bleachers, in between the bleacher areas. Um, so we use what we can, what we have available to us. And we've been able to add that um, essentially once a week, they'll do it, you know, for an hour before their skills, um, every Sunday night. And, um, you know, I think it, it brings tremendous benefit for one, you know, to give that diversity of movement to the kids and to, to maybe help offset, you know, some of the, some of the strains in their bodies, hopefully from being on the ice and doing the same kind of repetitive skating motions throughout the course of that season from, you know, mid August until early April. Um, you know, and I think we're building athletes, right? Like that's the intent with, uh, with any kind of youth sports programming. So I think it allows us to do some unique things with that. Um, and it's fun for the kids, like the kids that come, they love it. Um, I would say that was, well, there's a lot of, my... there's a lot of fun game. There's a lot of fun gameplay stuff in there. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that was one of my son's favorite, uh, 
you know, favorite activities throughout the year was going to that off ice training. And for the older kids, we also added some shock talks. So it, it's not just about, you know, the, the stretching and the mobility stuff. It's not just about the exercises that we're doing, but we're also sitting down and doing a, a video session with them. Um, you know, talking about tactics and we do that for the, the peewees and the bantams. There's a video that, um, a guy in Russia, uh, put out a couple of years ago about, uh, eight, nine year old kids, eight, nine, 10 year old kids doing, um, uh, on ice agility type stuff with and without pucks and showing them and then showing in the video what they do off ice to complement the uh, the on ice. Now, with with what you showed me in that video, and, and if uh, listeners would like to get that YouTube uh, uh, URL, if you email me at richard at grassrootsminorhockey.com, I will send you the uh, the YouTube video link. But that means that those kids are on are doing another activity on top of the 120 or something ice sessions that they have from middle of August to end of April. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. That sounds like an awful lot for little kids. It is a lot, you know, and we've, we've tied the, we've tied the off ice training to their on ice skill session that they get. So it's not an additional trip to the rink. You know, we've just utilized, again, we don't have the facilities at the building. Like we don't have a gym. We don't have any kind of a training area. We just utilize what's available to us. Uh, and we've right. done so basically without adding any cost to the program. Okay. Well, I mean, you're doing it in a parking lot and of course, minimal equipment, probably yep. a lot of stuff that, that, you know, parents will have around the house to, you know, play balls and pylons and stuff like that. Uh, it just, it strikes me without, I'm not trying to be critical of the program. I'm sure the program itself looks really good, both the ADM and off ice, but the number of sessions is a concern to me. Uh, for little kids, you're talking about seven, eight, nine-year-olds for the most part. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I mean, we're we the the kids that we serve start at eight U, and they you know they go up to up to midget, right? But then the other question that comes along with it is, what is the cost of all this? Because cost in Canada is one of the biggest complaints people have about minor hockey. So it's definitely not cheap. Uh, it's certainly more expensive uh, here, I found, than, you know, what I was used to back in Eastern Canada. I don't know, you know, I can't, I can't speak for what youth hockey, minor hockey costs in other parts of the country. But, you know, for us, um, if you're talking about our learn to play, like our in-house stuff, the cost of that is about $600 for 90 sessions. So it's actually, you know, per ice time, it's actually pretty reasonable. Um, that is very reasonable that when you say 90 sessions, you mean two practices in a sort of a cross ice game or half ice game per week. Yep. Two practices in a, an in-house game, cross ice game per week. Um, it runs for 30 okay. weeks, three times a week. Um, but it is a lot, you know, it's, it's a lot of money when we, like we've, we've kind of staggered our, our cost structure, like our, our eight users are paying about $1,200 and our 10, 12 and 14 years are paying about $1,700, but that's about as cheap as youth hockey gets in this area. Like that's nonprofit. That's just covering the cost of the program and that's it. And, you know, it, it is expensive. It's expensive for your average family for sure. Um, especially those families that have multiple kids in the program. And we do have a lot of those. So, you know, we've got a few discounts and things like that to help, but, you know, when you look at the way that programs are structured in this area, like we have an ice contract that runs from, the middle of August until the first or the, actually the end of April. Right. And so you buy hours and you buy that hour for that duration. 
And in order to have enough ice time to support our teams all season, we've got to carry that ice, you know, essentially for eight months out of the year. Right. So if you're carrying that ice time at 250 bucks an hour, which in our area is about as cheap as it gets, you've got to have the That's pretty reasonable in the United States, actually. Yeah, it's not it's not that bad, right? But you got to have the programming to support that. And you know, I think it would be if I could in a perfect world, I think I'd like to see, you know, our 8Us skate less, probably start in October or something like that. Um, you know, and go until the end of March and then have, you know, additional programming to to support maybe once a week for, you know, the spring hockey or something like that. Like I do think that they skate a little bit too much, but it 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 kind of, it's a difficult thing to do. If you look at all the choice that they, that people have around here, um, you know, programs skate a lot. Uh, the kids are on the ice a lot and people are paying extra to go out and find additional training sessions. So, you know, we look over at and above it, the, uh, over and above the three to four sessions they get a week. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. You know, and I, and I don't think that's unique around here. I mean, I think that that's an issue in Canada as well right from what i from what i see and from what i've talked to folks up home but um and so you know we looked at cutting back the amount of practice time and the amount of games the length of the season when we were looking at the adm uh because that was one of the things they wanted us to do right but you know we also had to offer a competitive program and one of the things that's competitive is to make sure that we offer a similar amount of ice time to those programs around us. And again, we made some targeted cuts. Like we, we lightened it up a little bit at the, be the beginning and the end of the season. And we added some, took away some practices and made some family time and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, you kind of have to be able to, to provide competitive programming. Right. So. So you're afraid uh, of losing kids if you didn't have that. Yeah. But at yeah, the same time, it almost, it almost keeps out other kids, right? Like the hockey a lot of the hockey people want to see the kids skating a lot. And by doing that, you kind of exclude some other families who maybe aren't ready for that commitment and cost. Right. So it's trying to find a balance. So as good as the ADM programming is, uh, and yours is, uh, as you say, among the cheaper ones, we've sort of found a hole in the ADM, which has been regarded up here with, with much, uh, glowing eyes that, well, my gosh, they're doing fantastic things on there. Now we're seeing that it's costing twelve to $1,700 to be on the ice four times a week for nearly eight months. Are you afraid that uh, this may cause a dropout somewhere along the line? I think we should be concerned about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that as the cost keeps growing, you know, that, that pushes people out. That's certainly, that's one of the reasons why I put a lot of time into this nonprofit um, association model, you know, for myself, because I like, that's important to me, right. Is for, for kids to be able to go out and access this type of programming and, and to have access to youth sports like that. It's not just a hockey issue. It's a youth sport issue. Right. Sure. And I don't know that that's necessarily a problem with the ADM because again, the ADM, and if you go outside of mass, they're not skating this much like programs that are following the ADM in other parts of the United States, they don't do this. This is a mass issue, a mass hockey. Oh, issue. I see. Right. Because we're in Massachusetts and, you know, it's, it's a, the way that the, the States run, it's the way hockey is in mass is a little bit different than it is in Minnesota versus what it is in the South. You know, it, it just kind of depends on, depends on the state that you're in, what the model looks like. Right. So here in Massachusetts, like in order to, 
in order to satisfy our, our obligations to the rink and in order to kind of keep up with some of the other programming options that are out to out there to people, we've got to do, we've got to skate this much, right? Minnesota is a little bit different model. Like, you know, there it's, it's not necessarily about the club programs. It's about the high school programs. So people play municipal hockey and there's a lot of municipal ranks. It's more of a, it's a lot more like um, what I remember growing up back home, you know, from what I understand with the exception of the high school being sort of the end goal as opposed to junior hockey. Um, yes. Right. Down in the South, I think it's a little bit different model, right? Where, you know, that they've got a lot of hockey families able to start things from scratch and maybe build programs the way, um, you know, sports scientists would like to see them built. But, you know, I, again, we, we're, we're doing the best that we can with what we have. We'll put it that way. Well, I mean, the programming I'm sure is wonderful. It's, it's just a case of cost and numbers of times on the ice, which is staggering. I mean, I see associations up here in Canada that complain when they're competitive level kids, not housely kids, but competitive level kids, are on the ice three times a week, you know, and uh, it's been mandated by Hockey Canada now through the U9, U11 pathways programs that there's a maximum number of, of practices and games that they can have at certain times of the year. Uh, it goes from three to one in the fall to about two to one, I guess, in January, um, which is still not enough. There need to be more practices, but the retention rate is a problem up here. Um, I, I don't know what it'll be three years down the road in Massachusetts when people are spending $1,700 minimum because they're buying extra stuff as well. But it's a rich man's sport, a rich person's sport, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that, that I struggle with that. Like personally, I kind of struggle with that a little bit, you know, um, mm. I don't like to see it being that way. I don't think that's good for high performance sport because you want to attract athletes, not necessarily the, you know, the, the folks right. with the checkbook, right. It also limits the, the sport opportunities that, you know, these kids might have outside of hockey too, right. If you're paying this much to play one sport for eight months out of the year, you know, what's left over to be able to participate in the soccer league, you know, but again, it's not, especially here in the States, it's not just a hockey issue. Like there, there are soccer parents that are paying just as much as hockey parents. Right. There's, there's other sports where they're playing They're they're, you know, it's, it's just gone crazy. Do you hear from other sports at all complaining about the, uh, the amount of time that the kids are doing hockey and not allowing them to play soccer, baseball, football, whatever? Not really. Um, I mean, I think we, we hear it from our parents sometimes that, you know, they run into, into challenges with trying to manage schedules, especially in the fall and in the spring, you know, cause. Sure. Sure. Yeah those are really the times where you've got that, that big overlap, right? Like, I mean, even us right now, like technically our season's not complete, right? Like we still have some ice times left We're, we've got a clinic this weekend, but we've been playing baseball now for three weeks and we've been doing lacrosse for three weeks. And, you know, so we, we run into that scheduling conflict as well. Um, it certainly makes right. it right. challenging through the winter. Like if you're engaged in another sport that happens over the course of the winter, it's really tough to manage. All right. That's interesting a problem but it's interesting it is and i think like i said you know with our introductory program that was the whole goal in trying to reduce the cost like and we just looked at it like if you have 15 kids paying a thousand bucks or you have 30 kids paying 500 bucks it's the same right so more kids on the ice less cost now honestly i think that's the answer but the challenge that you have is that without municipal ranks people have to turn a profit, right? Like the management company that runs the state rank that we play at, it's low cost for here. 
but they still had to make a certain, it, it's not like the town of, right? It's not going to the rec department. It's not coming out of somebody's budget. Somebody's got to cover costs and somebody's got to make a profit on it. And especially when it comes to the club programs, like if the municipalities aren't building rinks and they're leaving it to commercial businesses to build those rinks, well, like they've got to support them. So you kind of can't, you can't really fault somebody who goes and invests in a rink who then has to create a youth hockey program to support that rink and has to have that ice sheet filled 12 months out of the year. I saw that of plenty running hockey schools down through the Eastern seaboard, you know, 20, 25 years ago where people, very wealthy individuals would build a rink so that their figure skater or their little hockey player could have a, a hockey team to play on. And they built the association around um, the construction of the facility. Uh, and in, in a great many cases, they just failed because they just, there wasn't the interest at that time. Yep. But uh, I saw it in North Carolina and in Georgia and Florida, all over the place, uh, trying to build, you know, building these multi-million dollar facilities and not having any kids to play. So they were charging an enormous amount of money for an hour of ice. Yep. And it was a chicken and an egg. You know, people wouldn't play because it was too expensive. And it was too expensive because, you know, they couldn't get enough kids and so on and so on. But anyway. Al, are you one of those guys who, uh, one of those coaches or hockey people who uh, begs, borrows, and steals from whoever you can, whenever you can? Absolutely. Shamelessly. Good for you. Shamelessly. That's great. Yeah. I should point out to listeners that uh, Al and I have sort of met virtually on a Skype call with run by Wally Kozak in Calgary. Uh, there's a bunch of us on there, and then some pretty well-known names in the hockey community are on that uh on that Skype call, the vast majority are in Canada, but Al's part of that. So that's where we've uh, touched base. Al, I thank you for being on the show. Uh, anything to add in your defense? No, well, I, again, Richard, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to join here today and talk coaching and, and talk about some of the things that we're doing down in our area. And I hope, uh, I hope that you, the listeners find it useful. I'm sure they do because uh, I'm will, because we talk a lot about what's going on in the States, not, not versus what goes on in Canada, but in conjunction with what goes on in Canada. Uh, we sort of beg, borrow, and steal from each other and have for quite a number of years. Uh, Al Ramsey, thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, and we will be in touch again, I'm sure. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Take care and uh, best of luck with your program. Thank you.